I'm Adam. And I'm Aida. And welcome back to Season 7 of Fly in the Wall Podcast. To kick off Season 7, we are excited to welcome Lily Adams, who's fresh off the trail as a communications director of Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. She has also served in communications roles in numerous congressional offices and on many campaigns, including on Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. But before we get started, make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Fly on the Wall Pod, and you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Welcome back to another episode of Fly on the Wall, and welcome to Lily Adams, our first interviewee of the season. We're so glad to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Um, yeah, so let's just jump right in and talk about a little of your political background. Um, your grandmother, Ann Richards, was the last Democratic governor of Texas, and your mother, Cecile Richards, was the former president of Planned Parenthood. Did you always know that politics was something you wanted to go into? I didn't know always that I wanted to go into politics, but I was always surrounded by politics. I was always surrounded by people who were involved in politics. Um, I think I probably knew how to stuff an envelope before I knew the full alphabet. Um, so I was raised on the campaigns of my grandmother, um, but her, both her first one and then her re-election campaign. Um, and we were involved, my parents were involved in local races in Texas. And so it was just, it was a whole community that we were, um, that we were involved in. And so it really did help kind of expose me early on to politics. Um, but it also exposed me to people who had this great privilege, which was being able to do something for work that they, you know, felt sort of moved by or, you know, gave meaning to their life. And so I think that was something that early on set an example for me that I was really grateful for. And as you were growing up in this environment, were there any lessons that your parents or your grandmother imparted on you that stick with you to this day? You know, my, my grandmother was, so you mentioned she was governor, she was governor for four years and then she lost. And I think that um, she was never somebody that looked back. She was never somebody that, you know, she just moved forward. Um, you know, it was, it's kind of crazy to think, but you know, she was governor and she'd been governor for four years and everybody I knew had either worked in the administration or, you know, worked on the campaign. And so when she lost, I said to her, I said, you know, it, does this mean you don't have a job anymore? And she was like, honey, this means everybody, you know, doesn't have a job anymore. And so it was a, it was a huge loss for, you know, my family, for her, for, Austin for Texas right. for Democrats, um, but she also set such an, such an example for me and for um, sort of the rest of that community who had done so much for her. Which is that you know you just like you're gonna take some knocks and you're always gonna look forward. There's more like there is more um, after politics. Uh, I think it's a lesson that frankly a lot of people who are in politics could learn because <laughs> I think some people think the be all end all is being an elected office and she was um, she just set a great example in that way that you always want to look to the next thing. So you intended to work in journalism um, and then you in ended up in campaign communications. Can you tell us a little bit about that transition? Yeah, my first my first job or my first internship was at ABC News. Um, I worked uh, for ABC News Nightline um, under Cynthia McFadden, who had become an anchor there. Um, and it was a great, honestly, it was a great first kind of glimpse into the world of news. Um, and I, you know, was exposed to, you know, if people sort of watch the Schoolhouse Rock of how a bill becomes a law, I basically saw how a news story becomes TV. Um, and it really did kind of, you know, help me understand how news is processed, how it's made. Um, what are the decisions? What are the mechanics like for a TV news network? 
um, that really helped me, you know, further on. Um, and then I had the opportunity to meet people who were involved in politics, but were involved on communication side, which was totally foreign to me at the time. And so um, I was like, that seems like a pretty cool job. And so I, <laughs> so I thought, why don't I try to find a job in press on a campaign? And so I did. Um, and really after one race where we lost terribly, um, but I was just completely hooked. So it was like, if I'm hooked on a race where like you're just getting shellacked, like this seemed like a pretty good, pretty good career path. Yeah, and moving forward um, in your career path, you've worked um, on the Senate side on the official capacity mm -hmm. for the offices of um, Virginia Senator Tim Kaine or Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal or um, Senator Kamala Harris, but also on notable campaigns like Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential bid and also Kamala Harris's recent presidential bid. Um, what are the main differences between working for, in the official capacity and working for a campaign in campaign communication, I mean, in communications in general? Yeah, I think the nice thing about communications is that it is a lot of like translatable nuts and bolts skills, whether you're working for a campaign, whether you're working um, in government, whether you're working for a company, you know, you have to know kind of the rules of the road of dealing with reporters and things like that. But there are big differences. One, if you're on a campaign, there's like a deadline. It's like starting the fastest startup company with a massive like IPO deadline that you're trying to build your company around. Right. Um, and so that's one difference that that's not a deadline that you face, you know, as much when you're in the Senate, when you've got a six year term or something like that, you got loads of time. Um, the second one is that, you know, when you're on a campaign, it is like usually, um, you know, mano a mano, like fierce partisanship. You, it's you versus the other person. You're trying to gain every possible piece of advantage that you can. And it's a very like solo sport. You are just like trying to do whatever you can to help your, you know, woman or man get ahead. Um, in the Senate side and in Congress, um, you know, you do have to work with Republicans. You do have to work with other Democrats. You do have to, it is far more a team sport, um, but it's also good. It exposes you to other ways of thinking of people who are from other regions of the country, of people who are different political parties than you are. Um, and I think it forces you to try to think about, you know, if life is a Venn diagram, even if there is just a like small sliver of places where we can agree, um, how can we find that? Because that's really what people expect you to do when you get there. Right. And was there um, a side of it you liked better? I mean, I think at my heart, I'm a campaign junkie. I think I just, I've always enjoyed the tempo of it. I think um, it's a very like, uh, if you're into kind of instant gratification of seeing how your work plays out like very quickly, um, it does really benefit, you know, somebody like you. Um, but the second thing is that, you know, I've gotten to live all over the country. I've moved to, I've lived in Iowa, I've lived in Connecticut, I've lived in Virginia, I've met, you know, I've moved to cities where I don't know anybody um, because there was something that I believed in so strongly. And I think that that is, um, that's a really gratifying experience and it kind of does train you to do whatever else you want to do the rest of your life. Um, so that I really wouldn't trade back, you know, Senate, it's going to be there. It's the Senate. <laughs> yeah. They haven't moved it yet. Yeah. <laughs> So speaking of campaigns, um, you worked on the Clinton campaign in 2016 as the head of Iowa Communications. Can you take us through um, how you started that campaign and started in Iowa? 
Well, I mean, the, the crazy thing, I mean, there's a lot of crazy things about that campaign, but the, but one of the crazier things is that, you know, I moved to Iowa. Um, I'd been asked to be, this is how job offers were done, um, because she wasn't a candidate yet, it, that if Hillary decided to run, if Secretary Clinton decided to run, would you be the Iowa communications director? It's, it was the most bizarre job interview process I've ever encountered in my whole <laughs> life. Um, but so I moved to Iowa with no guarantee that she was actually gonna do it, although I was really hoping that no one was thinking <laughs> they moved to Iowa with, without some inkling. Um, you know, I moved there with, we, I hired one other person, and finally, you know, you're like signing leases and stuff, but you still don't know that she's for sure gonna run. Um, and the first thing we had to do was basically, you know, we've been told that if she's gonna run, again, this is like the magic legal phrase, um, <laughs> that, she would come to Iowa first. And so we had this kind of hilarious, um, you know, it's like should be a movie, uh, of trying to plan a trip for one of the most anticipated presidential candidates in some time um, to come to Iowa, but do the whole thing in secret. <laughs> so we were like scouting out, um, you know, venues for uh, different events in Iowa. So we were like going to community colleges, kind of like posing as students to ask questions about the programs that they ran there to see if it dovetailed with our message and to like see if this would be a good, you know, location for, you know, with enough parking for satellite trucks. I mean, it was it got like totally comical that we're just like driving all over uh, God's creation in Iowa to a state that I had never been to until I moved wow. there. Um, and same with Pat Bergwinkle, who is our press secretary, just like again, having these very cryptic conversations with people about a potential event space and things like that, but we couldn't tell them who we were for or what, when the event would be. Um, so it was like, it was a hilarious way to start um, what was a really uh, intense, obviously, year in Iowa, um, but was really a once in a lifetime opportunity to work for her, um, who was someone I really believed in, who was, um, I thought she would have made a great president, but also, you know, working in Iowa for the caucus um, it's like working in the Super Bowl of politics, I have to imagine, for football players. Um, you know, it's, like, it's just like everybody has to come there. And yeah. so you do become sort of the epicenter um, of political press for, for a good while. That's yeah. amazing. So fast forward to the end of the campaign. Mm -hmm. um, can you take us through what it was like working on election night in 2016 and the responsibilities and work you may have done um, in your capacity on that night? Mm -hmm. Um, so after the Iowa caucus, um, I came back to Brooklyn and basically was in charge of the March state communications. So anybody who was doing future primaries that were in March, April, May, uh, June, what have you, um, the communication staff in those states and kind of planning out as we prepare for a pretty long delegate fight. Um, and then I got put in charge of the state communications for the battleground states for the general. Um, and so fast forward to your point to election night, um, the, basically the campaign had to designate one person to be the point of contact for the networks because networks, uh, obviously on election night for a general election are calling states like, you know, so-and-so won this state or didn't win this state, you know, they got that big board and, you know, like putting the state red or blue. Uh, some are too close to call, you'll remember um, from many election nights. And so um, they put one person as the point of contact for networks um, on election night. So basically the job is to, um, before a network is gonna call a state, 
Um, they'll usually check in with both of the campaigns because you really don't want to get it wrong. And so if the campaigns have data or um, things they want to share with you uh, to try to either tell you that that call is right or tell you that that call is wrong, um, that's kind of the time to make that case. And so um, that was my job on election night. So it was a pretty long uh, and pretty tortured, pretty tortured night, um, but also was um, again, one of those like once in a lifetime experiences that um, I hope to never have that exact experience again, but, um, <laughs> but it was really, um, there were a lot of getting to know the states, running battleground communications, um, and working really closely with our analytics and our data teams. Um, it was a real kind of high pressure moment, but, um, but anyways, didn't go quite the way we wanted. Yeah. Um, you're also fresh off the Kamala Harris campaign. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about your strategy as communications director um, for Kamala Harris for the people? Yeah, you know, I think, um, obviously, I think that we, we are facing as a party, um, obviously, a pretty existential crisis of trying to figure out who's the best person to um, beat Trump, but also who's the best person to kind of like turn the page once this whole nightmare, in my opinion, um, is over. And I thought that um, Senator Harris presented a really good option, um, and I thought she was the right leader for the right time. Um, but and I, and I think you know what we were trying to do, obviously from the start, was put together the coalition of people um, who had propelled Democrats to victory in national elections prior. Um, that includes voters of color, it includes young people, it includes women, um, along with, you know, other cohorts of Democratic voters. And so um, from the get-go, we really were trying to introduce someone who was very new to the national stage to a whole swath of Democratic electorate, um, try to make her case for why she would be the toughest person to put up against Trump, and then also make the case for why she was going to be the best president once this whole, you know, crazy time, I hope, is over. Um, so it was definitely, it was a crazy ride um and i think obviously if you ever have the opportunity to get on a presidential campaign there's just nothing quite like it um i still think obviously she'd be she'd be a terrific president and she's got a long future ahead of her so um this may not be the end but um i was proud of her and the campaign that she ran yeah and more specifically um as communication director you played a large role in helping shape the strategy for kamala harris's debate prep mm -hmm. Um, as if we were flying the walls, can you sort of take us through the process <laughs> of just preparing for um, any debate, or in particular, if you're willing to go into it, the first debate? Yeah. Um, well, I think that the, the the first logistical challenge that all of us faced who were communications staff or part of debate prep teams um, for this particular cycle is just the sheer volume of candidates. Most of the debate preps any of us had been a part of were probably you know, one candidate and then there's another candidate. So you just get somebody to play the other candidate and it's like, it's pretty easy. Um, but this one was obviously like very people. different, <laughs> right? The idea, I think one candidate, I can't remember which, I think it was Andrew Yang or someone, maybe Tom Steyer, who like rented out a whole theater and like hired actors to play every single person. <laughs> I thought that was like a sheer like level of commitment that um, was kind of wild. But um, but I think that was that was like one of the first challenges is like, how are you gonna prepare for a debate with, um, you know, potentially 10 people on a stage? Um, and I think that really what it came down to is, you know, a lot of it is, you know, just sort of going through, ticking through all the issues, making sure that um, a candidate has kind of their frame of, you know, their frame of how they're going to talk about issues um, and kind of it's almost like batting practice, just like shooting questions at them. 
Um, but even more than that, I think as you get closer and closer to the debate, because the debates were shaped so much by the news coverage of the time of what was going on. So right. if you were doing a scenario in February for a debate in June, that would be completely unhelpful. Um, and so I think as we got closer and closer and closer, um, you know, you wanted to sort of create scenarios that you thought were the most likely to happen um, with maybe one or two other stand-ins. Um, to give the candidate an opportunity to kind of react in real time and to, to kind of shape it. I think that, you know, I think the most successful, um, the most successful debates for Senator Harris and for, frankly, for any of the candidates, because um, she isn't the only person who's had a successful debate performance, um, is really when there is like kind of a, a pretty outlined strategy where you go in with an offensive strategy. Um, and you execute on that strategy. If you are allowing yourself to be kind of like dictated by the whims of the moderators or by other candidates, um, at the end of the day, you probably don't have like a great story to tell. Um, but I think that, you know, it's, it's a challenge when, you know, at this point there's been like 10 debates, something a little bit less than that. And so at some point you've heard everybody's 45 second answer or one minute, 15 second answer on climate change or, you know, foreign policy. And so it really does get a little repetitive. Yeah. And you worked with two very major presidential candidates who were women um, and not just any women, prominent women in American politics. What are challenges and experiences that were unique to those campaigns? Well, I think that and I hope that it becomes the norm for for people like me, um, for political staffers to work for more women presidential candidates, because that'll mean that they're just, you know, more of them. Um, so I hope that that's the norm. Um, but I will say that, you know, there is still, there's a reason, there are many reasons why um, we've only had, you know, only had male presidents, only had one president who was a person of color. Um, there is still, you know, sexism and racism that exists in this country that we all have to kind of contend with. And those are like sheer factors that if you work for a woman, if you are for a person of color, if you work for a woman of color, um, those are challenges that you're going to face um, all the time and that they're going to face all the time, headwinds. Right. Um, but more than that, I think you're also just dealing with the everyday kind of biases that people have, the non-malicious biases that everybody has, because they don't know how to process a woman trying to be president, a woman of color trying to be president. There's not that many people who can remember Carol Mosley Braun, who ran for president in 2004, or Shirley Chisholm, who ran for president. Um, decades ago. And so you are really on a day to day basis challenging people to like expand their kind of mind of who can do what role. And so and I think the problem is, is that it's completely subjective too. every reporter has different experiences, different biases, every voter has different experiences, different biases. Um, and so it's just you're constantly trying to thread a needle of, you know, being yourself, being true to yourself, being true to your message and why you're there, um, but also having to be just cognizant of all the different kind of viewpoints um, that people have out there about women and about people of color and about candidates of both. Um, and I think in particular, the conversation about electability has become sort of a lazy way of um, disadvantaging women candidates or you know candidates of color. Um, both men and women in, in an unfortunate way that we're going to have to, you know, deal with. Definitely. And reflecting on those experiences, um, if you go back and do anything differently during either campaign, would you? Um, I mean, I think at the outside, I would just say I, I, 
I'd rejoin, I'd work for either of those women again. I'd do both those campaigns again. I have no regrets about spending time, um, even when it was, you know, 10 below zero working for Hillary Clinton or, um, you know, getting no sleep, things like that. It was like a true honor and privilege to do both of them. Um, I think there's always, there are always things when you win or lose a campaign that you go back and you think, if I knew what I knew now, <laughs> you know, I would have really done this differently. Um, but I do sort of go back to that lesson I was telling you from my grandmother, which is like, it's important to have lessons. It's important to look back and think, what could I do better? What could I personally have done better? What could the campaign as a whole have done better? What are lessons I take to the next campaign that will make me smarter, better operative? Um, but it's not good to obsess, you know? Right. I think um, certainly we're like, I feel like we relive the 2016 election enough, you know, it's relived enough on Twitter and on cable enough um, for a lifetime. And so I think you wanna try to take those experiences and then kind of move to your next thing. Um, because wallowing or, you know, obsessing helps really nobody. So um, I try to do that as best as I can. Yeah, that's amazing. And like looking forward and with advice for a lot of our listeners who are students and planning to go into politics, as a senior level communication strategist on numerous campaigns, you have tremendous experience, um, especially in hiring entry level staffers. What are the most important qualities you look for? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've hired a lot of people. Um, I think, you know, really when you're when you're young, I think what I'm looking for is somebody who like is excited, is hopeful, is optimistic, is a hard worker. Um, I mean, if you want to get into press, like wake up early. I, I, it's like, it sounds like a really small thing, but it's like not. I mean, I think um, so much about press is that, you know, especially when you're a, a junior staffer is like knowing things before other people. And so um, a lot of really like just kind of waking up early and, you know, kind of definitely that like early bird catches the worm um, adage is very true um, still in press, um, even as the news cycle has become 24 hours. Um, but I think also it's just like what I look for are young people who want to hustle, who want to work hard. This is the nice thing about campaigns is that um, at their best, they are a true like meritocracy. And, you know, if you work hard um, and you're a good person, like you're going to go really far. Um, and I guess that's the last thing I would say is like, it costs you nothing to be nice to people. So, you know, everybody you're going to see on the way up, you're going to see on the way down. So be nice to people and it will come back for you. That's amazing advice. Yeah, well, thank you, Lily, for joining us. Before you go, we might do something on final we call the lightning round. Yeah, I'm excited. Super difficult questions. Very excited. Yeah. You hit you with yeah. a couple questions and you try to give us a quick response. What you um, got? All right, so the Iowa caucus is in less than two weeks. Uh, who do you have coming out on top in the caucus? Oh, man. And in the <laughs> Come on. <laughs> And in the primary also. Okay, and this is, I'll make this as short as I can, but the problem with the caucus uh, at giving an answer to that question right now is that for the first time, there are gonna be multiple metrics on caucus night, which is gonna make it super complicated for campaigns, super complicated for the networks, super complicated for the press um, to name a winner. Um, so I think my, my prediction right now is that there will be multiple campaigns who claim victory on caucus night. A punt. Oh. I won't tell you which oh. one. That's a total, it's a total 
Okay, so um, a lot of our listeners are students, as I said, and I can imagine that a lot of people will be out getting out the vote, especially over the summer and the fall. Um, do you have any snack recommendations for those on the campaign trail? Oh, this is good. This is, okay. When I first was traveling with Senator Blumenthal, um, he like does not eat lunch very much, and so I was always starving in the car. So I'm, I'm well positioned to give advice on this. Um, <laughs> Definitely, I would say almonds. Oh, if you can get those like packs of almonds because they're like high in protein and they're gonna they're not gonna melt. Yeah. Almost if you get like a granola bar with chocolate. Like if you're out in the summer, like that's gonna melt. Like gummies, things like that, they're gonna melt. So like things that don't melt, <laughs> you know, like nuts, nuts, really good, really good. Like trail mix without the chocolate and stuff. Like oh, really yeah. good, really good snacks. Okay, definitely. And then the last thing is. You're here as a geopolitics fellow. Yeah. Um, you have a discussion group called Tracking the Democratic Presidential Primary in Real Time. Mm-hmm. Do you have any quick plug for that you'd like to give to our listeners? Yeah, look, I, I think that the next two months are going to determine going to determine the Democratic nominee for president. It's pretty, like, it's pretty cut and dry there. I think um, it's not often that you get an opportunity to have, like, an off-the-record conversation with me or with guests or to really kind of dissect what had happened that week. Uh, and for us to all kind of as a group try to make sense of what's going on, why voters are making the decisions they're making, why campaigns are making the decisions they're making. Um, so I am really excited to, one, share a little bit about my experience, but also to just kind of like hash this whole thing out in real time. So Amazing. This has been a fantastic interview, and we're Great. so excited to get to know you better over the course of the semester. Me too. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you again to Lily Adams for joining us on The Pop. We have some great content lined up for 2020, so make sure to stay tuned. For the latest news from Fly on the Wall, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fly on the Wall Pod. And if you want to email us with any questions or just say hi, you can reach us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Bye. See you next episode.